Hello there, and welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. For those of you up with the rooster on the weekends, Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. For those of us who at least let the sun come up before getting up on a Saturday morning, we're coming to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. That's FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. As always, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Golaska about a proposal that, if implemented, claims to reduce Virginia homicides by at least 36%. We also sit down with Jennifer Jacobs. She's the executive director of the Albemarle Home Improvement Program, often known as AHEP. With her, we talk about how rehabbing homes can be a powerful tool in repelling the forces of gentrification right here in Charlottesville. Right now, it's time to talk to our friends at Charlottesville Tomorrow about the latest news in our community. Today, we're joined by Emily Hayes and Charlotte Renee Woods, both reporters at Charlottesville Tomorrow. We're also joined by the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow, Giles Morris. They're here to talk about the reverberations of August 11th and 12th and its second anniversary. Emily, let's start with you. You wrote about how the response to the August 12th white supremacist rallies has been slightly different in the county. Tell me what that difference is. August 2017 turned Charlottesville into a hashtag, and it shows terms like racism and white supremacy are now part of every Charlottesville City Council meeting either in speeches, by activists, or in discussions by counselors. The reverberations have been much less public in Albemarle County. I went through thousands of pages of Board of Supervisors meeting minutes between the rally and April of this year, and I only found racism and white supremacy a total of 10 times. I talked to the chairman of the Board of Supervisors about this, Ned Galloway, and he said that he felt the substance of policy and votes were a better measure of whether the board was actually achieving racial equity than a keyword search. He said it, you know, it's a very emotional, personal item to discuss, and he felt like that kind of conversation happens better in one-on-one dialogues. And you spoke to some experts as well, right? Talked to University of Professor Frank Dukes, who specializes in collaborative planning, and he said that the answer to whether local governments need to discuss race and class to achieve racial equity is, quote, as about absolutely yes as you can possibly have. He was arguing, if you don't talk about these things, we replicate the harms of the past. And he offered an example from his own neighborhood in the Rio Road area where new apartments are being proposed and there's been a lot of opposition to this about traffic and that sort of thing. And he said that in the context of a housing shortage that disproportionately affects people of color, he was arguing there's a racist outcome, even if people aren't intending that. So does that lack of discussion about equity affect county policies? So it's not entirely clear yet, but the county does have this really cutting-edge Office of Equity and Inclusion. This department is led by Siri Russell. It was founded in November 2018, and they're working on that question of how do county policies affect people across all of these different identities and backgrounds. That includes both race and class and sexuality and region, you know, rural areas. Why isn't there more discussion about race in Albemarle County? Is it because county residents don't want to talk about it? So I didn't get the full, full answer to that, but I do know that county residents are talking about race. Some of the most intense conversations about race happening in county public spaces are 
about schools. There's this coalition called the Hate Free Schools Coalition of Albemarle County that's really focused on symbols of what they see as racism, that Confederate symbols and other things that that they say remind students of the August 12th rallies and bring up other kinds of traumas. So they've really focused on trying to get the schools to ban that kind of symbol. They've been very successful in, in getting the county schools to remove Lee Jackson Day as a holiday, and they're still working on some other related things. The the name of Kale Elementary, which we've talked about with you guys before. Yeah, I guess I would just say I think municipal bodies often respond to stakeholder voices, right? That's what they're designed to do. The activists and leaders who turn the discussion around the monuments, which are in the city, also made the connection to urban inequity issues in our historically black neighborhoods and brought those issues to council. So there was a very concrete context for the discussion. The county has had less one-to-one there, and the county is certainly behind the city, but at the same time putting the money behind, putting the staff behind, and empowering people to, to change that system. So Emily, your article had two really strong examples. One was the schools example and the coalition that you discussed And then another really strong example that you had in the differences between Charlottesville municipal governments and the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors had to do with housing and the way that race is kind of implicit in a lot of the discussions that come up around density and development. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's this really fascinating project that's been in front of the Board of Supervisors and the Planning Commission over the past couple of years. And This is the Southwood Mobile Home Park that Habitat for Humanity of Greater Charlottesville purchased a long time ago and is trying to rezone and redevelop into a mixed-income neighborhood. And they're trying to put residents at the center of all the decision-making. You know, they have residents who are engaged every week on designing. And there's been crazy amounts of community support around this at the hearings. The auditorium has entirely filled up in a way that I have never seen in covering it for two years. So, And then it was just approved. You were asking about how those kind of discussions implicitly reflect on our race conversations. And, you know, with something like Southwood, which was a privately owned trailer park, and then Habitat bought it. And in the period that it bought it, it was essentially a port of entry community for um, Central American immigrants. It became the focal point of the conversation around equity and Latinx population in the county. And so it takes on this larger context and meaning than just what it is as a reason. Let's turn to your article, Charlotte. Could you tell us about some of the people still experiencing health concerns related to August 12th? So even though the events of uh, the events of August 11th and 12th happened two summers ago, some of the survivors still have lasting impact. They've needed therapy from coping with uh, PTSD. So several of them still have outstanding medical bills and procedures still underway. Star Peterson, one of the survivors, the day of the, that, that event, she actually was injured in multiple parts of her body. She had broken bones in both of her legs, her arm, a rib, and it's taken very extensive amounts of physical therapy and surgery two years later, and she's still got a road ahead of her. There's someone who needs spinal surgery, and Medicaid's not going to cover it, apparently. Peterson was very aware that sometimes people, it gets out of sight, out of mind. It's been two years, and some people, you can be injured, and you can heal within a couple months, but these injuries are lasting much longer. 
And former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe recently wrote a book about Charlottesville that has stirred up some controversy, especially among those who were present or injured, right? Yes. So some of the sources we spoke with in our article recently attended a book, a promotional book event for McAuliffe's book. And during the open mic time, they called him out and criticized him for some of the inaccuracies in it, which have been reported on already. They also were encouraging him to donate to the Heal Charlottesville Fund. Originally, the proceeds of the book were slated to go towards the Virginia State Police Association and the Heather Heyer Foundation, but not anything for the survivors. And so they were asking him to do that. And um, after some back and forth the last few weeks, he has finally, I've heard from multiple sources that, including a spokesperson from his team, that he will be donating a third of the proceeds to the Heal Charlottesville Fund. The story was about the survivors and and their care, right? I feel like, and we talked about the county, but this is still the biggest thing in city government, city politics, city, is, is this moment and where we are in time in relation to it. The first wave of the trauma struck human beings and decimated their lives. And then the group of people who were there that day around them experienced that firsthand and still suffer through that trauma. Everyone who was downtown experienced the trauma of watching their police not protect them in the face of this violence and hate. The city has been affected by the reverberations of that and the connections of that to longstanding equity and race issues in the city. There's not a single conversation at a single nonprofit or government agency or organization or advisory board that doesn't come back to that moment and where we are in relation to it. It's just a reminder that, yes, you remember the victims and you take care of them. That's the first responsibility, I think, of the city collectively in this. But then There's so many other things that came out of this conversation that this community is still healing from, recovering from, trying to get past. There's even Um, an establishment of a civilian review board now. Right. The community policing conversation has changed. The housing conversation Mm -hmm. has changed. Charlottesville is also looking at establishing an equity office. They talked about that at city council this week. It's definitely ongoing. Conversations about nonprofits and their role in the community have emerged out of this. The hate-free schools and Mm -hmm. school-based race conversation and this conversation about the achievement gaps in the schools was revived and resuscitated as a result of this. So there's not a single thing we cover that we can't come back to this. I will say we're still trying to build shared truth around where we are as well. And it's going to take some time for, for us to build the right pathways and systems for moving these issues forward in a way that feels like success with shared consensus. Well, as always, thank you so much for being here. Thank Thank you you for having us. (laughs) Thank you. Emily Hayes and Charlotte Renee Woods are reporters at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Giles Morris is the executive director. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEJ FM network, TEEJ.FM. WTJU and TJFM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. And now for an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond.
Well, here on Soundboard, we turn to state news and politics in the middle of the show. And as we do each week, we talk with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska. He's over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So I want to start things off today with Virginia's state budget. Uh, Governor Ralph Northam painted kind of a sunny picture of state finances to the General Assembly this week, but he warned of a possible coming economic slowdown. That's partly because of a trade war with China and other Trump and Washington-related uncertainties. Uh, Take me through the state budget and what's going on. Well, ironically, coming off that point, I mean, part of the reason for some good news in the budget is actually Trump and his uh, uh, federal income tax changes uh, about a year ago or so. But anyway, there's still some really bad news about Trump, too. But let's jump in. Okay. Uh, Governor Ralph Northam has reported that there's uh, the state in its biennial bu- budget uh, for two years and everything has something like $1.6 billion in reserves. Meaning that we haven't spent that much, and we have some some you know skirted away, and in fact, and uh, there's another round of uh, uh, Virginia state tax refunds coming, some 431 million. This has to do as a result of the tax uh, changes brought on and passed by brought on by Trump and passed by Congress, and also there's some uh, changes and increases in internet internet tax sales, which have uh, been beneficial to the state. I mean, I don't know what this means. I, I got a kind of a refund, a small refund from the state in the summer, but I may be entitled to another one between October and November. I don't know what it means, but but watch your mailboxes. Maybe you'll get some money. Um, but there is there are some other some things that are a little bit kind of kind of uneasy about this this whole economic scene. And what are those uh, sort of uh, unease? Well, one thing is that a lot of economists, I think almost uh, three in, uh, out of four, do believe the recession could happen. It won't happen this year. It may happen in 2020, more likely in 2021. There are a lot of traditional um, signs of something happening because, you know, the the growth has been really strong for years. I mean, you know, after under Obama, after the 2008 crash, and even on through Trump. One, a couple of things are there's been a lot of volatility in the stock market. Um, the yield curve on bonds has inverted, which almost always is a you know signal of a coming recession. So one issue is, so you know, and I don't, I don't know if legally what how this would work about the refunds, but it probably is a good thing that there's a surplus in the budget if we're going to be facing a recession. Another issue, which is just you know coming to the fore with the rather erratic Trump administration is how his policies on trade wars and tariffs and the like uh, are going to affect Virginia's, uh, you know, agricultural sector, which frankly is the largest part of the economy if you add it all up. Is it still really? Yeah. And for example, uh, the largest farm exports for Virginia are poultry. When you consider all those, you know, turkey and chicken farms in the valley, Shenandoah Valley, soybeans are number two. Livestock, nursery products, and tobacco, and a lot of the uh, soybeans are bought by China. And Northam's family owns farms uh, in the Eastern Shore, and he's a soybean grower. And he says that his, because of the coming Trump wars affecting the prices of. Uh, and the lack of sales of, of Virginia soybeans for export, he says they're losing like two-thirds of their value. But that's sort of another factor to worry about is whether or not continuing you know, wars with everybody on trade will really hurt Virginia in the long run. Well, Peter, let's move on to another story here. Uh, there is a Boston University researcher who's done some, some looking at Virginia's gun laws. And 
says that if a package of three gun laws would reduce homicides in Virginia by at least 36 percent. That is an interestingly mm-hmm. concrete number. Can you take me through what, what laws this okay. – uh, yeah, what's, what's the story? Okay, just basically that after the um, mass shooting in Virginia Beach on May 31st, Nick Ralph Northam, the governor, wanted to have an emergency uh, – called the General Assembly back into session because just about every gun control measure has been blocked by the Republicans – um, even since the 12 years, 12-year-old Virginia Tech shooting, which killed what 31 people, and then the Republicans were well, anyway. The Republicans blocked that until November, but in the meantime, the state crime commission had hearings with the General Assembly um, this week, and one of the people, the experts' testimony was Claire Boyne of Boston University, and and you look at. We're not talking necessarily here about mass shootings. We're talking about just homicides in general involving firearms. She said that there are three steps that I think four states have taken that have really cut uh, the number of deaths down. And one is, is that you simply prohibit the ownership of a gun by anyone who's been convicted of a misdemeanor, not a felony, but a misdemeanor, a domestic violence case. And the other one is to be, to, to be more you know, strenuous in rejecting concealed carry permits if you find trouble with someone, and definitely go with universal uh, background checks. And she said if this would happen, it could reduce homicides in Virginia by 36% or about 125 people a year. Well, what action might actually come out of this? You know, the legislature is going to take it up again? Well, I, I think, that just, as I say, what action could come out of it, we don't know yet, because the key is the election. And because what's happened, if the Republicans have been in control, most Meaningful reform efforts have been stopped in committee. They're not even debated. It would be one thing if you had a line vote straight up and down, but you don't even get that far. It's just you go to a committee and it dies. I mean, time and time and time again, that's happened. If it, you know the Democrats come in, it's going to be entirely different. So that's that's I think what you've got to watch. Yeah, definitely. Stay tuned to the state elections happening this fall. Um, I see this week you wrote about rural broadband again. This is a long-running issue that you and I have spoken about before. Um, why are we still kind of at square one when it comes to getting real broadband to some of the rural areas of Virginia? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that um, a, a Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger represents the 7th District, um, which runs pretty much west of Richmond, parts of Chesterfield, and some rural areas. Um, she held a, a summit in Mineral, Virginia, at a high school there, uh, recently, and she raised all these questions and talked to people. And and the fact is, is that we're now into the internet for what going on two decades or more. Um, a lot of people in rural areas and inner city areas don't have broadband for the simple reason is that the traditional large carriers, which would include Comcast and Verizon and AT and T, don't want to spend the money to put in there, and they want you. Uh, when you they want if you, they supply you with internet, they want to also give you cable TV and a zillion channels and a phone and everything else. So your monthly bill will be a couple hundred bucks, and they make more margins that way. Well, that means that they really don't want to go where the distances are are, are bigger, the people are less densely populated, and and so they just avoid it. So the big issue is whether some smaller companies have stepped in, but the real issue is whether you need a real government approach. And that would be cities and towns or regional authorities coming in and being formed. Um, sort of like the Tennessee Valley Authority provided electricity um, in the Mid-South in the 30s. It's sort of the same concept. But there's a lot of opposition to governmental agencies getting involved in the broadband business. Where is that opposition from? I mean, we, we're talking about a, a public good 
for something that's basically a public utility being handled by public coordination? What's right. the what's the issue? Well, the argument of these people is that um, you know you'll, you they really can't see uh, you know uh, governmental agencies competing or in, involved in what they think is a private sector. And I mean to be fair, I mean ProPublica and the Louisville Courier Journal did a big piece in Kentucky. Uh, about how a statewide effort to have public involvement in broadband really had a lot of problems. But nevertheless, it doesn't answer the question about why people in rural areas have slow and unreliable broadband or service, or they don't have it at all. And uh, how can they live in the 21st century without it? Well, where where should the, where should we go or could we go uh, as a state? I mean, what's next on this? Well, my opinion is, the private sector's failing to address the issue because they just don't make money in rural areas or in inner cities. So you're going to have to have some kind of broadband. You need to change the focus of the idea of broadband and internet access rather than one of a privilege uh, to one of a utility that's necessary. I mean, you have to have a phone so you can call the police, and there, there, there are laws that require uh, access to telephones. And that's going to be switching to um, internet completely eventually when 5G comes, especially. So, you know, it, you're going to have to face this. And it's been going on. I've been writing about this for, oh gosh, 15 to 20 years now. And it's the same story. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for taking the time today and have a good week. You too. Take care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard right here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM network, TWEJ.FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Here on Soundboard, we have a whole lot of conversations about the affordable housing crisis in Charlottesville. This week, I sit down with Jennifer Jacobs from AHIP for a different view. Rather than talking about zoning or density or new construction in general, we talk about preservation and restoration. We talk about how helping folks rehab their homes is an important part of solving the affordability crisis and ensuring that people who don't want to move out of their neighborhoods don't have to. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about AHIP? Sure. AHIP is a home repair nonprofit. We believe that everyone should be safe at home, and we believe that everyone should be able to hold on to their homes. And that's pretty much what we do every day, all year round. We help people make critical home repairs. We do emergency repairs and housing rehabs and energy efficiency upgrades, which keeps them safe. It reduces their operating costs of their housing, and it makes sure that, they, um, that they're able to stay in place and age in place and that they don't have to leave their house because of a small or large home repair. We hear the word gentrification get thrown around a lot when we talk about affordable housing mm-hmm. in Charlottesville. What role does rehab play in gentrification? One of our reasons for being is to serve as kind of this protective layer um, in between homeowners that want to stay in their homes and neighborhoods that are uh, subject to a lot of pressure from the forces of gentrification, which, you know, expands and contracts all over the country. Um, And we're seeing it a lot in Charlottesville. Decades ago, it was sort of you had the opposite problem. You had a lot of disinvestment, people, people of means fleeing the urban core. And now you have a lot of pressure coming back in. 
to urban centers because the trend now is people don't want to necessarily live in the suburbs. They more people want to live close and walkable and, and all that. It's becoming a lot more popular. When you have a place like the city, which is 10 square miles, there just isn't a lot of, of room to go. There's different tools and approaches that affordable housing advocates, no matter where you are on the spectrum, um, employ. So one of those is increasing density. And that's something that the affordable housing developers talk about a lot, is changing the zoning, increasing density so we can get more units, more people into the smaller, finite area. For what AHIP is concerned with, though, we want to make sure that we can preserve the units that exist today. And if we don't, in a hot real estate market and in a finite area that we find ourselves in, once those units are lost in this market, the likelihood of them being preserved as affordable or being able to go to homeowners that don't traditionally have easy access to credit or are lower wage workers or, or retired people, it's going to be much, much more difficult to hold on to that. And so what we do is we make sure that we go in and for the people who want to, we want to be able to protect those homes and make sure that they can stay. And for a lot of the people that we help, it's really fascinating the stories that we've encountered along the way in the city, in the county, urban, rural. It, it's it's kind of universal. A lot of the families that we help are families whose like you know their grandparents built the house and they have stayed in there. Or they they you know they left and then they came back or they, you know they were raised in the house and then they left and they came back and they took care of their ailing parents and then they moved in or their aunt had the house and they you know and so we see a lot of family transfer of property and wealth, which is. So hard to come by for many, um, many families in our in our community. Poor people, people of color, have had really difficult time accessing wealth through through property ownership. So one of our reasons for being is to is to make sure that people can hold on to that and aren't subject to, you know, facing these big repairs. And and some of them aren't even that big. But when you when you're on a very low social security fixed income. Uh, replacing a ten, twelve thousand dollar roof is is pretty much out of reach, and if you don't have access to the to borrowing capacity, if you can't borrow to do that, then then you're stuck. It seems like y'all are playing a really important role in preserving not just the quality of homes, but also the character of entire neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, I think that just by virtue of going in and making sure that people can hang on to their homes, we we like to think that we are helping to preserve the fabric of these communities that are that that's so critical because the, the communities are there. It's constantly changing. It's a dynamic, you know, no matter what, things are always going to be changing. But if we can go in and help protect those neighborhoods against involuntary displacement when people don't want to leave and they want to stay and they want to be able to pass along property to their children or grandchildren and keep those homes. Because like I said, in this in this community, it's not like you can just run down the street and buy another house. Like once you're out, you're out. So we, we really take that role very seriously that we that we have a, one of our duties at AHIP is to make sure that we can help people stay when they want to. How can people in the community support AHIP? There's a couple ways. There's three, three main ways. One is contributing. We uh, we have increasingly relied on private donations in the community to fund our work. The local funding has increased, which has been which has been good, but it hasn't been able to offset, especially in Albemarle, the loss of those of those funds. In addition, the waiting list has increased, need has increased, cost of materials have increased, and the and the need to hold on to good people in our organization and make sure that we're a high performing organization has increased. Basically, we have a we have a nonprofit construction company is what we're running at AHIP. I am particularly grateful to the people in the community who have rallied around this cause, and not just AHIP, but all the affordable housing causes, which we couldn't 
address the affordable housing crisis by just rehabbing owner-occupied homes. It wouldn't do it. We have to look at density. We have to look at rental housing development. We have to look at innovative solutions like land trusts. We have to look at homelessness prevention and um, and intervention. So, so that's really critical. So I'm very, very grateful for all the, the noise that people are making around this and all the donations. So donation is one. Con- uh, financial contributions is one. In-kind contributions is another and volunteering. So in-kind donation of your time or your materials. We have this incredible relationship with Beck Cohen um, as, as one of our nonprofit partners and Tiger Fuel is another and they've been incredible in donating and discounting s- systems for us so we can go out and help people. So that's another way and the other way is being able to talk about when when we talk about affordable housing it's easy to think about the ribbon cutting and the new unit but having people become aware of of the need for rehab and preservation and making sure that when you have an opportunity to talk to uh, an elected official or a candidate, when you ask them about affordable housing, uh, thinking about what it was like the last time your HVAC broke or your water heater went out and what you did when that happened and what a just a complete nuisance it was and how stressful it was to have to fork over or borrow you know, the 500, 800 bucks to go get that water heater replaced. And knowing that if somebody works at a dry cleaners or as a home health aide, they simply do not have the resources to go out and replace something like that. And so what they do is they call a hip. And if we can't help them, they have to wait. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. And that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I hope you all have something fun planned for this weekend. If you're looking for other things to do all fall long, not only does WTJU have our free music series Free Fall starting up on August 31st, but we also have just launched a citywide music and arts themed scavenger hunt. It's called Seavell Beat. You can find it and more information at seavellbeat.org. Until next week, my name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Choga Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M.